So, I have an embarrassing story to tell. How many like it when preachers tell their embarrassing stories? Um, and I will never forget this. I was working as a, as a, as a manager at a popular store in Chicago, a running store. When two young ladies, they come in, and one of them is in need of running shoes, and the young lady who was looking for shoes, she knew exactly you know, what she wanted. So I went back, I grabbed her size, and I brought them back out to her. And, you know, being the nice Midwestern boy that I was, I decided to strike up a conversation with her and her friends. And I noticed that her friend appeared to be showing. So I asked, how far are you? Words that would live on in infamy. To which she responded, excuse me, but I'm not pregnant. And at this point, I'm getting like hot flashes. I'm sweating. My palms are really wet and it feels like I'm about to faint. So instead of immediately apologizing, my instinct was to justify myself by saying, oh, it looked like you were pregnant. (laughs) And at this time, I'm thinking like lawsuits and harassment charges, protests outside of the store. But instead, she gets up very calmly, but clearly distressed by my ignorance. And before she leaves, she said, you know, you should never assume that a woman is pregnant. And then she walked out and said, I have never been so humiliated in my life. And, um, you know, that was, I've had quite a few embarrassing moments in my life, and that was at the top of them, but I learned a few lessons that day. One, that I don't care how far along a woman is, I'm never going to comment <laughs> on her unless she tells me out of her mouth that she is pregnant. Ironically, I had a friend tell me a few years back that she was pregnant, and I acted shocked. It was like, oh, wow, congratulations. And she said, Tobias, you mean to tell me you didn't notice my big belly? And I was like, nope. <laughs> But the second thing I learned was that things don't always look the way they seem. You know, sometimes things look like they are happening when really there's not much going on. I mean, you can go to church and you can look the part. You can look spiritually pregnant, but there's really nothing going on on the inside of you. You see, a Christian is not known by how well they pray. A Christian is not known by how much they give to world missions or to serve the city ministries. A Christian is not even known by the warmth of their smile and the respectability of their dress. A Christian is known by their faith in Jesus Christ and their love for others. That is how you know what a Christian is. And so I want us to look at what that love looks like. Because John spells it out for us in verses 9 to 10. I won't go through the entire text. I mean, the time won't permit me to. 
But John says, dear friends, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone that love has been born of God. And they know God. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. And this is a very important teaching coming from a man who many would consider the apostle of love. I mean, Paul is known as the apostle of faith, and Peter is known as the apostle of hope, and James is known as the apostle of good works. But John, John is best remembered as the apostle of love because much of his writings is about love. He writes of his love for Christ. He he writes of God's love for the world. He writes of Christ's love for the church and of our love for one another. John uses this Greek word agape over 30 times, more than any of the New Testament writers. And it's clear that love was one of his biggest takeaways from his time with Jesus. Sorry. And it gave him... It gave him the theological depth into understanding the very nature and character of God. He says in verse 16, God is love. This is a phrase that you won't find anywhere else in all of scripture. And it's mentioned twice in this epistle. God is love. And what he's saying is that, yes, there are many attributes and characteristics of God, but none that more perfectly describes the ontological and the eternal nature of who God is than love. See, John wants his audience to see that the source of all love is God. And while that sounds obvious, it's not. Because there is a tendency for us to believe that somehow the source of love is within us and that we have the capacity to define love separate and apart from God. Or at least that's what our culture wants us to believe. Love is often portrayed in movies and in literature and in songs as an abstract idea Phrases like love is love and all we need is love is more of a philosophical concept that is rooted in the self. Self is the authority by which individuals are free to define for themselves what love is. And what we see is that love then becomes loving those who love me back or loving whomever and whatever makes me happy. Love becomes less about commitment and sacrifice and more about the freedom to choose whatever makes one happy. But the scripture is clear that love is not abstract because love is rooted in the nature and character of God. Therefore, it is both concrete and specific. Paul spells this out for us in 1 Corinthians 13 when he describes what love is. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It's not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. 
In other words, those who derive their definition of love from God understand that love is not selfish, but selfless. It is selfless in its relationship to God, and it is selfless in its relationship to others. See, this is how John wants the churches in Asia Minor to love each other and to encourage them to do this. He wants them to understand, first and foremost, how God has loved them. Verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he first loved us. What this shows us jumps out at you almost immediately is that love loves the unlovable. Love loves the unlovable. That's what this verse is saying. Listen, we didn't love God and we didn't want God. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter one that in our natural state, we are lovers of ourselves. We are unthankful and we are God haters. Yet in this condition, we read that God loves us. And God's love is not some sentimentality or tolerance masquerading as love. Though our culture would like us to believe that there is no truer way to love another person than to fully accept them for who they are and to accept everything about them. See, tolerance then becomes a relinquishing of one's conviction in order to accommodate another's. This, in and of itself, is not love, but it's a form of tyranny. So often, Christians can get so swept up in this wave of tolerance that we become over-tolerant, especially on important moral issues. We become tolerant about divorce. We become tolerant about our sexual ethics. We've become tolerant of injustices and tolerant of people's prejudices. We've become tolerant of canceling out those people that we don't agree with. We've become tolerant on matters of truth. And what we forget is that tolerance is not a fruit of the Spirit. Love is. In fact, Jesus shows us what love looked like in the flesh. He didn't tolerate the former prostitute Mary Magdalene or the self-righteous rich young ruler. He loved them enough to help them find transformation instead of leaving them in their sin. You see, tolerance doesn't require one to endure the cross for others. Love does. And so God, in his love, made a way for us to find forgiveness and peace with him through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And in verses 9 through 10, John gives us one of the clearest definitions of what love is in the Bible. First, he says that love is visible. We read that God showed his love for us. Love is not love if it's something that you cannot see. 
I mean, if you truly love someone, you don't just communicate it in words only. You show them to say, I love you, but do nothing to show that you love them is a kind of pseudo love that may soothe the ears momentarily, but ends up in deafening silence. This is how God visibly showed his love for us. Look at verse nine. He sent his son. Jesus is the visible and historical expression of God's love towards us. See, when God saw that we were lost, when he saw that we were sinking under the weight of our own sin, when he saw us walking towards the proverbial cliff into a deep, dark, and fiery eternity, he didn't just yell from eternity, I love you. No, he acted. That's what visibly loving someone does. It not only extends kindness and patience, but it acts to help those who are in danger. It protects. It does not turn a blind eye to evil or injustices that are perpetuated against another. No, love goes public and it shows itself. It acts and it intervenes. And that's what God did for us. Secondly, we see that love is sacrificial. Look with me again. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was an act of love unlike anything that the world has ever known. Christ laid down his life for us so that we might, in verse 9, live through him. God wanted you and I to live. So what did he do? He gave. He didn't just give his second best. God gave his very best. He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Why would God do such a thing? Why would God subject his son to such a horrible death? And the answer is because Jesus was the only one who could atone for our sins. Leviticus 17 and 11 says that the life of the creature is in the blood and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourself on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life because the wages of sin is death and life is found in blood. Therefore, in order for the wages of sin to be paid, blood was required. This shows the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. And Jesus was the perfect and complete sacrifice to atone for your sins and for my sins. He was the only one who could absorb the Father's wrath and taste death and rise again to bring life, hope, and immortality to all who believe on his name. But it didn't come without sacrifice. The father had to give his son. 
And the son had to make himself of nothing. He had to empty himself of his full and eternal glory. And on the cross experience for the first time a painful separation from his father. That's the length and depth of love that God went to in order that we might be reconciled to him. Dr. Tony Evans, a pastor in the U.S., said that if you profess love without embracing inconvenience and being willing to give up your rights, then you don't understand God's love. Love gives. Love makes sacrifices. That's what love does. Lastly, love addresses sin. The fact that God sent his son into the world to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins means that we can't ignore sin within the body of Christ. The fact that Jesus had to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins meant that our sins were serious to God. What this shows us is that love is not simply affirmational. God didn't want to leave us in our mess and in our problems and in our sin. But love is transformational. God doesn't want to affirm us in our sins. He wants to transform us from our sins. And today we want to make the Christian life all about personal happiness instead of holiness. And what we're seeing is a Christianity that has become all about compromise. Instead of a commitment to the truth, the Christian faith has always emphasized preeminently two very important truths, truth and love. Jesus Christ himself was the visible expression of both of these, truth and love, and he held them in perfect balance. When we try to do it, it often creates attention. That's why we either have all love with no truth or we're heavy-handed on the truth with no love. See, sin is serious. It actually leads to our diminishing and not to our flourishing. That's why we can't be afraid to call sin, sin. We must remind each other that Jesus, he died to free us from both the power and the penalty of sin. And we must do this with humility and with love. Listen, there was ever a time when our culture needed to see this kind of love on display. It is now. Because what we're seeing in our society is becoming more and more polarized with each passing day. We're seeing the collapse of civil discourse in our politics, a shaky economy, increasing violence, and things such as the coronavirus unleashing a fear and prejudice that threatens to tear our democracy apart. And you can't help but ask yourself the question, Will there be another Jonathan Mock, the Singaporean student who a few days ago was punched in the face and told that I don't want your coronavirus in this country? People are afraid. And naturally, fear will lead to self-preservation. And self-preservation will only lead to conflict in various forms of tribalism. 
But John tells his reader, as he's warning them of the threats and dangers they face from false teachers and false prophets, he gives them this one final characteristic of what love is. He says in verse 18 that there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out all fear. Love is fearless because love trusts. So you ask, how can I love in this capacity? Well, John doesn't give us a treatise of sort. He keeps it simple. You have to stay close to the source of love. Look at verse 17. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. We have to remain in him. We have to know him. Make sure no one mistakenly assumes that you are a Christian. Love visibly, love sacrificially, and love truthfully. And Jesus himself says, then the world will know that you are my disciples by how you love. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us the courage to love visibly, to love sacrificially, and to love truthfully. And help us, God, to stay source to the clo- to, to stay so close to the source of love, to draw near to you, to see and to recognize our need for you. And Lord, may your love transform us and make us people who are bold and fearless and courageous in our day and in our time. In Jesus' name, amen.